Yeah, that goes to you. On. <laughs> All right. Jim, is there anything you'd like to say at the top of the show? Uh, just thank you for having me, man. It's good to be back. Hey, my pleasure. And what we were talking about is this episode of On the Books, BrianNemar.com. With me is Jim Fear, 138. Hello, everybody. Writer. Hey, writer, uh, audiobook producer, and narrator. Your turn. <laughs> uh, that, that's that's about it for right now, um, at least until we get some other projects going. Uh, so you had mentioned that you wanted to talk about uh, audiobooks in this one, given that that's kind of my bag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's a hot topic right now. Our audience, as you know, tends to be a lot of writers and aspiring writers, um, pulp rev critics and readers. So a, a lot of folks have an interest in audiobooks nowadays because of how fast-paced modern life is. And like like you were saying, uh, you were just listening to our last episode with uh, John C. Wright, or our most recent one with John C. Wright, while you were mowing the lawn, right? Yeah. A lot of people now take books with them and listen to them to help make you know, activities that are, that are kind of <clears throat> dull and liven them up. So, you know, whereas people might have brought a paperback novel to read on the bus ride to work, you know, now they have their phone, plug in their headphones, hopefully, so as not to disturb the people around them and will listen to an audiobook. So as a result, the market has really exploded. And um, oh, one question exploded. that I get... Exploded doesn't even begin to cover it, man. Like the numbers are are absolutely insane. Like I think uh, the year before last, there was something like seventeen thousand audiobooks published. Um, it really wasn't a big market back then, but somewhere in between like twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen, or twenty fourteen and twenty fifteen, it just exploded, and the numbers went up to like thirty five thousand published in a year. And I only see that number going up. Absolutely. Now, other than the reasons that I mentioned just off the cuff, research into just the, the tremendous growth of audiobooks. Do you have any theories as to why it's happening? Uh, apart, apart from what you said, not really. I think it's just that life is a much, uh, at a much faster pace now. Um, people, are, people are reading less, but there's more, uh, there's more podcasts. You, know, you can listen to YouTube videos while you're on your, uh, while you're on your way to work or something like that. Um, and audiobooks are just a real, if you have a long repetitive task to do, uh, like, I don't know, maybe computer programming or something like that, or yard work, uh, an audiobook is very often over five hours long. So you could have an entire work day and not even finish one audiobook. Um, and you've just got this steady stream of content that you only have to pause whenever you need to talk, talk to somebody. That's how I used them at, at my last job. <clears throat> so it was just a way to keep my mind occupied while I was doing, you know, re repetitive physical labor. Um, also, people people still like stories, uh, but they don't like to read. There's too much other stuff going on right now. There's, you know, there's Twitter, uh, the never-ending stream of Twitter, uh, various other social media sites, um, keeping up with the news, uh, all of the stuff that you'll have to do for work and whatnot, and it, it's just it's too difficult for a person to schedule out, the average person to schedule out, time to sit down and just read a book. 
so audiobooks are a good way to get their uh, to get their their story fix without having to actually schedule time to stare at dead wood pulp for an hour. <laughs> Absolutely. The ACX is having played, and, and for those like three people out there who don't know what it is, what is it? Uh, what does it do, and do you think it's had an effect on the industry? Uh, well, ACX is the Audiobook Creation Exchange, and it is a company uh, that is owned by Amazon that is how they get most of their audiobooks for Audible, except for the ones that are produced by, you know, real production companies like uh, Tantor Audio or uh, Blackstone or companies like that. Um, basically, what ACX does is, uh, like you, Brian, you have books out on Amazon right now. You're technically the rights holder. You could go to ACX and you could make a rights holder account and you could put up the rights for those, for those books or stories and people would audition to narrate them. So, you know, I could be looking through the, uh, the books that are open for auditions and I could see your stuff and, oh, hey, I'll put in an audition for this. This looks like, like something that I would enjoy reading. Um, and the effect on this has been twofold, in my opinion. There's, there's probably more folds here, but I'm only going to go over two. Uh, but one of them is that it has made it insanely easy to get your audiobook made if you don't have a lot of money. Um, because audiobook production is not cheap. A lot of work goes into it. You know, the person has to sit there in a hot box and read for however many hours at a time, you know, until their voice gives out. Uh, and then there's the editing and the mastering. And if there's music to be added or something like that, uh, then that has to be taken into account as well. <clears throat> but with, with ACX, somebody who doesn't have the money to afford that what's normally 200 to $600 per completed hour. So the audiobook winds up being six hours long. You're paying like $400 per hour. Um, the people who don't have the money to do that, uh, they're able to put their stuff up on ACX and have basically any wingnut with a microphone go record it for them. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully you'll be able to find somebody who's talented and actually understands what they're doing and is able to produce good audio quality. That doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> but it, but right. the uh, the amount of stuff that is well produced on Audible via ACX is much higher than something like LibriVox because anybody can contribute to LibriVox. Anybody can contribute to ACX, but the author decides whether or not that person reads their audiobook. So there's an element of quality control that LibriVox just does not have. Because with LibriVox, I could go down to Radio Shack and buy a five dollar microphone and record <laughs> 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea into it, and it'll sound like I'm talking into a potato for 16 hours, and nobody's going to want to listen like you. It'll sound like you are 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, like yeah. in a basket <laughs> or something. Yeah. <laughs> Slowly going mad from loneliness. Um, and it's, <sighs> it's also made a, it a lot easier to get into the audiobook industry. Um, that's how I got my start. Um, I, I started, well, I started reading stories on YouTube first, but I found out about ACX and I stumbled upon the author, Andrew Beery, who was looking to get some of his Catherine Kimbridge novels made. And uh, I auditioned for those and he tapped me for three of them, all of them through ACX. Uh, and because of the way that the royalty system works out, he doesn't have to pay me a dime, but I'm still going to get paid if those books sell. 
Uh, and that's kind of an in perpetuity thing. Like there's no way that he can revoke the rights for that. As long as the book is on audible, I'm getting a cut of the profits. Um, so it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a win-win situation for poorer authors and less well-known audiobook producers. Like you would never catch <laughs> Stefan Rudnicki or somebody like that on, on uh, ACX or Peter Kenny on ACX. People come to them to read audiobooks. They're really famous. Whether or not that fame is warranted in certain people's case is up for debate, but uh, mm. they're able to charge what they want. For people like me, it's a really good way to break into the business because nobody nobody knew who I am a year ago. Now, I, nobody knows who I am now except for you know the circle of people that I run with. Um, but it, it it just it makes it easier on both sides. Uh, whether or not you think it's an equitable deal is up to you. I know that you've had in particular some problems with ACX's uh, royalty share rates. Um, but you know, for people who who aren't as concerned about that kind of thing. It, it just makes it a lot easier for them. Full disclosure, my position is don't give anyone a percentage who you're not comfortable making a partner in your venture. If you consider the audiobook narrator as a, a one-time job of work, a partner you know, like equal to a, a publisher if you're a trad author. Okay, you know, that that's fine. As an indie author, I don't, but that's my business decision. And, you know, I've, I've written posts backing this up. Other other people obviously disagree, but what you I said... Mean, actually, actually, I agree with you on that point. It is, it, it is one-time work, and I would much prefer to get paid my flat rate rather than go through ACX. Um, it's just a, it's a guarantee of payment. You know, I make more money in the now that I can put towards things like bills or whatever food, whatever I need the money for. Um, ACX, yeah, is, <laughs> yeah. ACX is good for exposure, but it's not really good for getting paid unless that's literally all you're doing and you're pumping out dozens of audiobooks a year. Right, and I definitely agree with you that it's a lot of work. I mean, it, it, it's hot, it can be repetitive, it's exacting, requires a lot of detail and precision. So I have nothing but respect for what narrators and voice actors do. Now, can you give me an idea of kind of the, the ballpark range for what the royalty share percentage on ACX usually runs? Usually, if I remember right, it's been a while since I've looked into this because I've been working with people who actually wanted to pay me up front. Um, but last time I checked, I believe it was something around 40%, I think. Okay. So I'll make 40%, the writer will make 40%, and then Amazon will make 10% for hosting fees. Okay, so it's not 40% of the author's 40%, it's no, the 40% author, of gross. Yeah, it's it's the gross. It's not, like, the author isn't making any, like, I'm, okay, it depends on how you want to look at it. If you look at the book as the author's work, and I'm just doing a one-time job, yes, I'm cutting into their bottom line by getting this 40% off of every sale. But um, if you look at it as kind of a partnership to get the audiobook made, then I'm not really cutting into the author's bottom line because the author didn't really expect to have much of a bottom line in the first place. So everything is profit for them. Right, exactly. Without the narrator, the audiobook wouldn't exist. Yeah. So there, yeah, there's a good argument to be made there. Okay, yeah, so now that we've looked at the business end, a lot of folks want to know about 
the actual product, you know, the the actual end result. So I know that, for example, uh, like if you've seen the the Watchmen motion comic, don't know if mm. you ever watched that. Uh, I, I, I recommend it. Okay, so in in terms of how you approach the the performance, right, when you're, you're narrating a book, um, if you can only speak for yourself here, that's fine. But do audiobook narrators generally read the book in just one voice, you know, as if they're just reading the book aloud, or do they try to give a different inflection or um, you know, in, tenor in my experience, to different characters. In my experience, and I, I think that everybody should be very grateful that they're living right now, um, <laughs> because, uh, <clears throat> well, it, it, like I say, let me start over. In my experience, there's different types of narrators. Some narrators, like Stefan Rudnicki, who I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. will just read in a monotone. Like, that's it. He never breaks character. Um, he never tries voice acting. He never does anything. And he's been in the game for like 40 years, so he can kind of afford to. You're not paying to get him to perform your book. You're paying to get Stefan Rudnicki to read your book out loud. Um, then there's people like Peter Kenny or uh, Victor Bavine. Um, Victor Bavine did the... Uh, Peter Kenny did the Witcher audiobooks, and Victor Bavine did the Drizzt Doerden audiobooks by Ari Salvatore. Um, I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name of the author of The Witcher. But <laughs> those guys bring a very, very special flavor to their audiobooks. Like, you can tell when it's them, because their prose reading voice is very... Uh, it, it's not flat. It's engaging. They do dramatic pauses. They... Uh, they try to make the prose exciting rather than just reading it flat. Um, and when different characters come up, they try to give them individual voices. Excuse me. And those two guys are very good voice actors. So they're largely successful. For example, if you listen to the Witcher audiobooks, it sounds like they brought in voice actors to voice Dandelion and Geralt. Um, the guy who did the uh, Metro 2033 audiobook is also very good. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But... Uh, I think that this is part of the craft as more voice actors have gotten into audiobook narration and the, the, the market has blossomed, I guess, um, in the past few years. And these people who are actually able to do voices and, and voice act properly come in and tell these stories. Um, it's gotten a lot more dynamic and it's gotten a lot more uh, exciting to listen to. Because I was listening to, uh, I, I recently found some old Dragonlance audiobooks, which I was a big fan of as a teenager. And I went and listened to the audiobook, and uh, it was just completely flat. It wasn't exciting. The only voice acting that the narrator did was he would give a little low hiss to Raceland's voice. That was that was it. Um, it, it was so bland and just, it, it put, like I was playing video games and it put me to sleep. Like I'm sitting there shooting demons in hell and it, it put me to sleep. So... <laughs> So if you're if you're a fan of audiobooks, be grateful that you exist at the time that the market is at the place where it's at. Because there's a lot of people out there who really, really do try uh, to make them engaging and put on different voices and make them interesting and exciting to listen to rather than just like, oh, I'm listening to somebody read a book. Um, so uh, I, I think it's an exciting time to be in this industry and to be a, a consumer of audiobooks. I don't know if you could call people audiobook fans. <laughs> I've I've run into at least one or two. They're they're out there, because because it, it is a unique experience. Mm -hmm. I don't like mm -hmm. a, a book which um, mainly engages uh, 
vision, you know, you're, you're, you're taking it to a whole other level with audio, which um, actually reminds me of a question I was going to ask. So you mentioned earlier the character of the narrator, which is something I've heard narrators mention before. So how do you approach your prose narrator character? How do you think of him? Well, it all depends. Like, I've been thinking about doing a... Uh... The, the first five or six John Carter of Mars books are available in public domain. And I've been wanting to do some audio with them because I just listened to the one of the audiobooks that's out there of a princess of Mars and I was severely disappointed with it. But um, I, one of the reasons that I was disappointed with it is that the, na the narration in the first book is all from John Carter's perspective, except for a little vignette at the beginning. And this is a Southern Virginian gentleman there was not a hint of a Southern accent. And it's kind of hard to read an entire book in an accent, but if I were going to produce something like that, I would put more of a Southern drawl in my voice and try to, you know, try to keep to that kind of way of speaking. So it would sound like there was a Southern gentleman telling you this story rather than, you know, just somebody reading his diary or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> so far that as... That was good. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So far as uh, prose goes, like regular prose, like third-person perspective prose, um, I have I have a stock narrator voice that I do, and it's just, like you hear how I'm talking now, this is my regular speaking voice. When I'm reading prose, I do something more like this, and I slow it down a little bit, except in the parts where it needs to be a little bit faster because action's happening and swords are flying and, you know, guns are being shot and things like that. It needs to, you, you have to adjust your reading speed to what's happening in the story, but I, I have that stock narrator voice that I do to differentiate it from all of the other voices that I do. And then if there's a, a prominent male character in in the book that's, go I know this guy is going to show up a lot. Um, I just give him my regular speaking voice just to kind of make it easier on me. Uh, but I, I'll put on different, uh, like the book that I'm working on now, uh, there's a tribe of werewolves in it, uh, Queen's Air by John Boyle. There's a tribe of werewolves in it, and occasionally they'll get to talk to the werewolves. So I try to vary up the, the voices, but most of these guys, uh, when they're in their werewolf form, I give them this like growling tone, which I'm not going to do here because I don't want to blow people's eardrums out. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but I put this I put this gravel in the back of my throat, basically, and just make it growl. It sounds like a, a wolf is trying to talk to you kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> but you have to be careful with that kind of stuff because uh, the most important thing is that the audience, the listener, understands what's happening. Because I've listened to a lot of audiobooks where they would do weird stuff and mm. I couldn't figure out what was being said. Uh, so I try to avoid that as much as possible. I try to make it as clear as possible. If I think that I, you know, said a sentence too fast and I might have jumbled some words or it sounds a little mushmouth. I'll stop, go back a step, record that line again, and just make it as clear as possible. Uh, there's also, it, this is why it's called voice acting, you have to put feeling into it. Uh, you know, there's there's a reason that the audiobooks from like the 90s, which are all like read by old, old ladies and old men, apparently, <laughs> um, sound like garbage compared to the stuff that's read today by people like Peter Kenny. Uh, it, it's because they make the prose exciting. They understand when dramatic pauses are supposed to happen. They understand when a character is supposed to be angry and they make them sound angry. Um, or when a character is supposed to be whispering and they, they make them whisper, but you can turn the volume on your microphone up a little bit so you can catch the whisper. 
uh, and then just adjust it in post-production. So uh, the the addition of things like Audacity and Reaper, which is a uh, uh, audio editing software um, that I highly recommend if anybody's looking to get into into audio production. It's very user friendly. But, but mm. um, with stuff like that, it's just gotten a lot easier to take care of things like mouth noises and breaths and, you know, when somebody is swallowing or something like that. Uh, so there really is no excuse for shoddy audiobook production post, like, 2010. Yeah, and you brought up an important tip for both narrators and writers alike. When given a choice between being clever and clear, always go with clear. Yes, Always make absolutely. sure that the audience knows what's going on. <laughs> That's job number one. So I, I appreciate your dedication to that. Yeah, it, it's well, it, it's one of those things, man. Like it, it, I treat it as a craft because it is it is a craft. It's something that you have to practice at. It's something that you have to work to get good at. Um, it's something that you have to work to get fast at. And I, I don't know if it's just because I've been reading my entire life. Like, my mother would read to me, and as soon as I could figure out what words meant, I was reading books on my own. Um, so I'm, I'm very good with discerning tone in literature. Like, I don't have to read a sentence more than twice or maybe three times to figure out what kind of tone the author is trying to bring across. And I've never gotten complaints about that with any of the audiobooks that I've produced. Uh, so a lot of audiobook narrators will read the book first and then go and, you know, record it. Uh, I, I really don't have time for that. I've got too much other stuff on my plate that I've got to do. So I just read it out loud the first time. And if I screw up, then I screw up, and I can take that screw up out in post. You know, it's very easy to delete stuff if you mess up a line. Right. Yeah, convenient. So what was the name of that software one more time? Was it Reaper? Yes, Reaper. Spelled exactly how it sounds, like the Grim Reaper. Um, I don't remember what the like name it. of the website is. It's like reaper.net or co or something funny like that. Okay. Well, we are almost out of time. So, so Jim, any final message for our audience? Any, anything you would like to close the show with? Um, be careful what audiobooks you buy. Because if you don't have a membership on some site like Audible or or what have you, they can be very expensive. Uh, for example, the last book in the Dark Tower series, The Dark Tower, is something like $60 without a membership on Audible. Um, now, if you don't know that narrator and you don't know the company that is producing this audiobook, it could be very shoddy and you could be wasting your money and very rarely will you have a chance to get that money back. So be careful, shop around, read reviews, um, and find narrators that you like and support those guys. And gals. There are plenty of good female audiobook narrators out there, too. <laughs> well said. Are there any projects you're working on? Anything that you would like to direct the audience's attention to? Um, well, uh, I do have the Catherine Kimbridge novels, uh, 6, 7, and 8, which I do get royalties off of. But one that I'm very excited about is uh, Queen's Air, the one that I'm working on now. Um, it's a very interesting book. It's it's new. Uh, I haven't seen anything like it in all my years of reading fiction. Uh, mm -hmm. The guy has some very original ideas, and I'm very excited to be uh, to be producing the audio book. But you can get the Kindle version for about five dollars, and it is absolutely worth the money. 
and I know for a fact that you're getting your money's worth because the book is huge. It's something like 40 chapters, and not all of them are short. So it's well worth the money, and you're definitely getting good content for your $5. So I would advise people to go buy that. All right, noted. Also, we have a question from the chat of your colleague, fellow professional voice actor John Mollison, is asking, is there a standard price for audiobooks, like $1 per 10,000 words? Um, usually the pricing for audiobooks, uh, for producing audiobooks, or do you mean, do you mean for uh, producing audiobooks mean, or, or buying them? I think he means buying. Buying? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I think it just has to do with file size, mostly. Like Amazon will set, to my knowledge, will set a, uh, a certain price on a book on Audible depending on how big the file size is. Like that's the minimum price that they will set on it to make sure that, <clears throat> that their server costs are covered. Um, and then I think you can fiddle with the price a little bit, a little bit above that. Uh, but I, I would be careful with charging too much for that. Like The Dark Tower, I could absolutely see being around $60 because it's a huge book. It's gigantic. Let's try it this way. If I record a 50K work of my own, what sort of asking price is reasonable to charge customers? Um, if you record a 50K work of your own where you're going to have the baseline for, uh, for hosting costs, and then above that, which I'm not sure what that baseline would be, but uh, I know that something like uh, to diverge into another industry. I know that Redbubble, you can upload your own artwork to Redbubble and they charge like 20 to $23 for a t-shirt uh, just because they make the t-shirt and they cover shipping costs. And most people charge about $25, you know, end price so that they make a couple of bucks over and above what Redbubble is going to make. Um, so that's kind of the approach that I would take with something like that is if Amazon has a baseline, like a 50K word story, let's say they charge a baseline of $10 for it. Let's just pull a number out of the ether. Um, I wouldn't charge more than 15. That way you get, you get some money, you know, for your work. And, uh, <clears throat> and Amazon gets to cover their price and the reader, the listener isn't being, you know, isn't being completely, uh, dragged through broken glass, I guess. You're not, um, you're not, you're not trying to rob the reader here, but you have, you do have to get paid. Um, one thing that I would recommend is, uh, doing some research on that. Like for example, when I went out and found out what other people were charging to make audiobooks at a flat rate, I decided, all right, I'm just going to undercut these people. So baseline <laughs> for an audiobook producer, a professional audiobook producer is about $200 and it can go up from there, but they usually start at $200. I charge 150 per completed hour. So it's still kind of expensive, but it's more, it's uh, less than you would be charged by just about anybody else in the industry, except someone on ACX. Uh, so I, I would kind of advise that approach, find out what, the file size is for your book and find out what people or other people are charging for uh, a file size about that size and then just undercut them a little bit and that way you still make money um and people are more willing to pick up your book because your book is cheaper in just a dead heat like all other things being equal your book is cheaper people are more likely to buy the cheaper one well thank you for that thorough answer i hope you guys out there listening I mean, that, that right there, that's a master's course in uh, the, the audiobook business. So 
I can also second that from a slightly different approach, which, which is editing. That's almost exactly what I did um, in terms of my editing service. I just found out kind of what the going rate was. I'm like, well, I'll, I'll offer my services for a little less, and uh, it's worked out pretty well. It, it absolutely works. Exactly. Okay. Was, was there anything else you had, anything else uh, kind of jar loose or come to mind? Not particularly, not unless you had any more questions or the chat has something. It looks like they're talking about uh, Christopher Lee reading Children of Huron by J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, that Which is awesome. <laughs> See, I, I loved it, but that's probably the differences in our taste. Well, I like the part that Tolkien wrote. Ah. Yeah, that, like half the book, it was, it was collected from his notes and, you know, parts of the stories that he had wrote and his son kind of filled in the gaps. And to me, it was just palpable which one was Tolkien and which one was Christopher. So. Yeah. Well, an argument there. I mean, I, I, I do like the version in the, the Silmarillion a bit more than when they expanded it out to uh, like novella size, but. Yeah. I don't know, yeah. I'm just, I'm a sucker for Tolkien. Yeah, same here. Same here. Okay. Well, thanks to everyone for joining me and Jim Fear 138. We've been chatting about audiobooks, getting pretty in-depth. If you would like to be apprised of additional, you know, further explorations into the wild world of publishing and writing and even audiobooks, subscribe below. And remember, because this is YouTube, you have to double secret subscribe. So just clicking subscribe isn't enough for them to get notifications of upcoming episodes. You also have to click the, the little little bell icon and then you'll be kept up to date. Also, a uh, couple reminders about, uh, about about my jams, about, about my business here. Um, I, I'm a pro author, uh, Campbell finalist and Dragon Award winner. And finally to my main soul cycle, fantasy sci-fi, we're not really sure what it is. Um, it's been described as Nymerian fiction, so I'm kind of in the same club as looks like Mary Shelley and Edgar Allan Poe and Jim Butcher, which is nice. So you can check those out. Uh, also got a new novella, high fantasy in a pseudo late antiquity setting, Him of the Pearl. It's being very well received. And also, speaking of the Dragon Awards, Dragon Award season is almost upon us. In fact, you have a little less than one week to get your nominations in. Uh, we'll close this on July 24th. Nominating is free. I will say that my third Soul Cycle book, The Secret Kings, sequel to the Dragon Winning Soul Dancer, is eligible for best science fiction novel. And it is also free to my newsletter subscribers. Uh, so you can find a link to my books below. You can find a link to the Dragon Award nomination page. Go there, nominate your favorite books, movies, TV shows, and games. It's free. You can find a link to Jim's website where you can listen to his excellent podcast. I was just uh, listening to an episode while uh, playing some Persona 3 the other night and uh, always fun, always high quality. He's got uh, some Pulp Red folks, some folks from our uh, general community, like uh, my Geek Gab co-host, Daddy Warpig. And you can listen to Geek Gab Prime, which is the show I do every Saturday, more or less, with Daddy Warpig and our co-host Adornal. You can find a link to that. So, for Geek Gab on the Books, this has been Brian Emeyer with special guest Jim Fear 138. Thanks for tuning in. And remember,